Is this live? <laughs> Alright y'all, uh, welcome back to the last episode of the Ecotones podcast for the year of 2016. I'm Pat Milligan, your host, uh, grad student at the University of Florida, and today I'm here, I'm very happy to have a special guest who's a good friend of mine, um, Michael Schaefer. Uh, Hi everybody! <laughs> so... Mike, uh, I thought you'd be an awesome person to bring on the podcast because you are a big fan of podcasts and you're a big fan of science stuff in general. And this podcast is all about, um, this particular episode is about uh, why zebras have stripes. That's such a general thing to say about me that I like podcasts. Yeah. It's like saying, <laughs> I go on the internet occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I do enjoy podcasts, and specifically I enjoy podcasts which um, present new ideas and information to the listener in a way that's entertaining, and I have, in fact, listened to your podcast, uh, so... I jumped at the opportunity to come on here because I would love to present more of the layperson's idea of the concepts being presented. Like, it's all well and good to get the pure science behind any particular idea, uh, but it's not tremendously listenable for uh, somebody who is not a doctoral candidate. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you're you're a smart person. You wear glasses. You know, you're. A <laughs> I do wear glasses. That is true. The yeah, people at home can't see this. Yeah. but I have them on right now. Yeah, so. I, think I think that's what Rick Perry puts on to have people know that he's a very smart man. So you know, I'm really... just shocked he remembers to put the lenses in. To be honest, <laughs> yeah. I was expecting a little Harry Potter thing where you could see the fingers go through yeah. it. But <laughs> yeah, I, I do like that. I introduced you as liking podcasts. It's like it's like going on a date and like I like music. <laughs> but um. But yeah, so what we're going to do is um, cut back and forth between an interview that I have with uh, Kaya Tombeck, who is a uh, PhD candidate at uh, Princeton University, and uh, Emily Nonamaker, who was her uh, field assistant for a summer, and she's a master's student at Tulane University, and um, so they both have some experience with working with zebras. Um, but you know, it, it's still humble bragging, even yeah. if you do it for someone else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. She's super qualified yeah. to be talking about this. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, cool. We'll get started. We'll listen to a bit. Um, and uh, we'll come back with some comments. So could you guys basically uh, explain what you do here at Impala? I study uh, the social behavior and feeding ecology of zebras, and there are three zebra species left in the world. And generally, you know, equids across the world are pretty geographically segregated, but two of the zebra species do actually overlap in their range here um, in central Kenya. And so I'm looking at questions about competition, for food between these two very similar herbivores in different sites in this area with different environmental conditions. And I'm also comparing their social behavior because they have very fundamentally different social structures. The plain zebra have these fixed membership groups, but the grevy zebra have, have fission fusion societies. And so they should respond very differently to things like predation risk and uh, food availability because they have different social structures with which to work. So what are you doing out here, Emily? I am helping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> helper. Yeah. Oh, we get a little helper. She's mm-hmm. also running her own little side project at the mm-hmm. same time. So I'm trying to look at the predation rate. So there's three different factors that affect group size. Um, and of them, there's predation, competition, and um, parasitism. So parasitism and competition are negative factors that affect group size. They keep the group sizes smaller versus predation um, is why they group together in order to have a little defense against lions and hyenas and their main predators. So I'm trying to look at um, the predation rate between the two different species and see which is predated more um, and add that little factor in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I understand that correctly, it's that... Um, what is it? Plain zebras are they maintain these like harems of, mm-hmm. of one male and like many females that are yeah. 
kind of more about maintaining dominance, and then Krevi zebras um, are based on like tying down water resources. Or? The males can either choose between holding down a resource, a territory with water in it that the females have to frequent, mm-hmm. or a territory with some good forage. Mm-hmm. So uh, the highest, like most dominant males, will hold down the best forage territories. And then if you're a slightly less dominant male, you go more for good water spots. And then the females will travel through on their way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the males will seek mating opportunities with those females. And that's the gravity zebra. And yeah, the plain zebra, yes, they have these harems. And they're, they're just so different. Harems stay together on the order of you know, three years or so. Mm-hmm. And the grubby zebras stay together more on the order of a few hours. And then they'll break up or they'll go off in little groups or, you know, they're just very loosey-goosey. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's totally different in yeah. terms of their social behavior. Okay, so the first thing that immediately jumps out to me is the, the style of breeding that zebras engage in. Uh, is it seriously called a harem? Yeah. Uh, that's a scientific term. It is a harem of zebras. That is the actual term for how plain zebras structure their society. Oh, you know, it seems accurate, if nothing else. Um, and the, the other thing that really just sticks right out to me is um, the male zebras control the, the supply of sex through food and water control. So they're like the bad guys from Quantum of Solace, but just for sex instead Absolutely. of money. Okay, that that's what I wanted to, to kind of clear up a little bit. Yeah. I was a little... I mean, it took me aback. It would be the way to describe that. <laughs> um, okay, so, and then uh, they were saying that there's two species of zebra that live here. Is that kind of like alligators? Like uh, how they are in China and Florida exclusively, but these just overlap? There are uh, three species of zebras, at least that I know of. There are mountain zebras, plain zebras, and grevy zebras. And only plains and grevies are found in Lycopia County, where we work. The grevy zebras are endangered. Plain zebras aren't. Mm-hmm. But grevy zebras didn't used to be around here. They are. They evolved in a more arid, you know, environment. And. Um, they were pushed southward by just increasing human pastoralist populations in the north. And so they've only been around here at Impala and Lebo, this other site that I work at, for the past three decades or so. Hmm. Um, so one of the questions I'm after is, you know, first of all, are these habitats actually suitable over the long term, like very long term, for this species? And second, are they less suited for these environments than the plain zebras, and therefore might they get outcompeted by this other very similar herbivore um, over the long term. It, it would be really nice to know that ahead of time. 30 years is a long time, so that we know they can survive, but we don't know what that, that would look like, what the population trajectory would look like over mm. a longer time period when they have time to yeah, compete with the plain zebras. And, and predation rates are We do know that at Lewa, Right now, the um, grevies are much more targeted by lions. So um, a much larger proportion of um, hares in the scat, which is how you analyze how many grevies and plains are getting taken down, is the grevies. And you can mm-hmm. tell that they're much more docile. Um, they haven't really evolved as much with lions yeah. as the plains have. Mm-hmm. So you can get close to grevies and take a photo, no problem. Trying to get close to the plains, you have to like kind of chase them down in your Range Rover to take mm-hmm. pictures of them. So if if you had to explain like the identifying hairs in scats, like so that's it sounds all of the biologists here at the station like know what that is, but what is that? Uh, uh, or how do you how do you do that? So you soak the hairs in a mixture of e- the scat and a mixture of ethanol and water, and then you go through and you individually pluck out the hairs and put them in more ethanol to clean them, um, and then you put those under a microscope. And you basically look at the root, and then you go through and you look at what it looks like. Some of the hairs have some identifying features to them, like uh, giraffes, uh, when they start out, they kind of balloon out and then get to like a normal size. So that's one of the identifying features. Uh, so the only one that you can tell by sight is warthog, because mm-hmm. it just looks like... It's just black. It's, ridic- it's black. It's, mm-hmm. it's black, it looks like a thread. It's mm-hmm. ridiculously... Mm-hmm. 
easy. Yeah. So a good a good differential good, good. between the planes and the gravies is the gravies will start out just medulla, um, which is the part of melanin, and just goes. Versus the planes, it's a little broken up, like a little spot, 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 and then mm. the hair starts. So. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are different little key identifiers, but you gotta pick them apart. Yeah. We've started to figure it out. And she know I'm pretty soon when you do don't run in the rap game with that lane. Always gotta be up on that train or that plane. Ain't nobody wanna feel that pain or that strain. Wishing I ain't gotta get that fame or rat claim. You know I'd give you my last name, but that blame on me. Chasing something feeling dumb, cause you all I need. Hope you wait until I'm done and I'm all free. But you know I never know when it's gonna be. And I'm sorry. Okay, a lot lot to unpack there. Um first of all. I, it's it's an unspoken thing. It's like with birth. We all know the poop is is present in the equation, but from what I'm hearing, it sounds like the majority of of animal research in Africa centers around poop. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if like it's majority or not, but it's certainly a lot of research is done on poop because you know a lot of these animals. It's hard to find them, um, but it's pretty easy to find their poop and it's also really easy to differentiate between um the poop from a a dick dick like a small antelope yeah. um or an elephant or even among types of zebras fantastic actually... name i just want to repeat that real quick there is in fact a a an animal in africa named the dick dick yep that is a thing that exists and we all just need to appreciate that yeah. it's a beautiful world that we live in mm -hmm. and Continue. I apologize. I yeah, just... <laughs> they're adorable. They have like little mohawks. They kind of have a diaper that they hold their poop in. They they absolutely love ba again. Poop. We're back to the poop. Yeah. We just it keeps circling around. Yeah. Like I feel like uh, the the woman from Jurassic Park was the greatest ecologist in history. Just Probably. mountains of poop everywhere. <laughs> just She's the queen of the university. <laughs> just elbow deep in it. Yeah, she was doing some real science. So so uh, they were taking apart lion poop to find the zebra hair. Is that did I have that correct? That's right. So the way that they um, the terms that you heard uh, where Emily was describing sort of the medulla and, uh, and the shaft of the hair. These are all just kind of universal structures that are found on hairs. That mm. when you put them under a microscope slide, you can um, you know if you're comparing literally two uh, two hairs, one from each species of zebra. They will have a different pattern of where the the melanin, that pigment, is located on the hair. And if you spend enough time looking at all of these different samples from different species, you can easily tell them apart under a microscope slide. Okay, so uh, the the different the planes and the gravies uh, zebras um, they they have the different uh, patterns. So like one has a solid. Uh, solid color hair and the other one uh, is patterned along the hair follicle. That's right. Okay, so I, I'm just picturing like, zebras just making fun of each other. Like, oh, look at this pure hair over yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, <laughs> mud, a mud blood or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, nice to see that um, <laughs> I don't know what that tells us about zebras, but yeah, but, yeah I like to, like to pretend that animals are racist, so... <laughs> That works. Um, and apparently warthogs are just filled with liquid evil. Yeah. They just ship piles of black on the <laughs> yeah. ground. Yeah. Oh, well, so this is... Um, so their their hairs show up as black. So I think the... Um, the What I can like correct there is that... So what we're looking at here is actually... Okay. The okay. hairs that, that these animals are producing. They're then... You can then dig into an animal that ate them into, mm. into their poop. Yeah. So, you know, you look at the scat that a lion has dropped... And if you do see a mix of, like, you know, a zebra hair that has a certain pattern, a zebra hair that has a different pattern, you can say, oh, wow, in this feeding period, a lion sure. ate both of these. And then, yeah, if you have these big black bars... That it's almost like uh, like the lion's body knows that it did something wrong by yeah. eating a warthog. Yeah. They're just so disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, I mean... I, you never really think about that when you think about lions eating a fresh kill, is that a large percentage of their poop just has to be hair. Yeah. That's, that is a, a part of ecology that I, I don't know why you don't bring that up more often mm -hmm. when you're trying to draw attention to these research projects. That should be front and center. Guys, 
There's so much hair in this poop. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> A story that I've heard uh, Ukiah tell around here, which I think is kind of cool, um, is the whole, like, why do zebras have stripes? Mm-hmm. So, um, was that actually a sort of project that you spearheaded, or was this something that Dan was behind? Dan's or? been working on it for a while, and mm-hmm. um, so have many other people. It's a, yeah. a 150-year-old question, like yeah. when he wrote about it. Um, it's still unresolved, but there has been some headway... So, um, there are five hypotheses, and, um, the, well, one of them is, okay, the one that sort of has received the least evidence for it is the camouflage hypothesis that it, you know, somehow helps break up their silhouette, um, or helps blend them into a bushy environment, Mm -hmm. but it is just... At least to the human eye, they're just so obvious out in the savanna from way far away that it seems unlikely. And um, there have been some other studies, you know, to look at that. And, and yeah, they've been their conclusions have largely been that that's probably not the uh, evolutionary driver for the stripes. The other hypotheses are um, that there's like a social function; they might identify each other that way. Um, it seems like a really promiscuous way to, um, or conspicuous way to identify one another. Yeah, um, it does. Considering that you can't see them from really far away. Uh huh. Um, but then again, like horses that are just brown mm-hmm. identify each other just fine. Mm-hmm. So it seems like a, it might be a driver, but probably pretty weak. Um, the other hypotheses are that um, there's predator avoidance advantages so um counting zebras is actually really difficult when they're in a group because you they mix and mingle and you can't you know you don't know where one starts and one ends as easily as when you look at other animals but when you're counting like say you have a group of 23 and paul and they're pretty close it can be tricky too also quite true yeah yep i know so that one i'm not sure about either but the thing is and this ha- really has to be tested well with like feline eyes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because you know the feline vision is different from human vision, and uh, it has to be real. It really has to be tested, you know, um, somehow like to in a context where a feline has to target an individual in a moving group where they're moving relative to each other. The stripes are moving relative to each other, mm-hmm. um, and you know, in in different directions, um, you know, different angles. And so that hasn't really been done very, very well, just in terms of getting it um, to really mimic the actual context that it would work in. Mm -hmm. The fact that there are five competing theories as to why zebras have stripes which is just a concept that you just accept at, at, from birth. You learn zebras because they're a convenient tool for teachers to use when they're teaching the alphabet. Like, if xylophones didn't exist, they would have nothing for X. A lot of teachers skimp out and go with a fox. And zebra just sticks right there. So you learn that zebras have stripes. And you never really think about it past that. So the idea that we don't know, and in fact there are five theories that are kind of, it sounds like equally credible. It doesn't sound like any particular one is standing out Mm -hmm. from any of the other ones. Uh, For example, the one that I always thought was true was the idea that they used it for camouflage. It just makes sense. I feel like that makes sense to a lot of people that haven't looked into this subject. Mm-hmm. Is uh, the same way that Navy SEALs use striped face paint to blend into the brush. The zebras are using striped patterns to blend into grass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we can see that they're black and white, but for depending on the, the way that the eyes of the lion are structured or of whatever predators in the area are structured, 
Um, maybe maybe that is it. But um, it sounds like this is a subject that had just been accepted as true for so long that we're only just now getting around to figuring out the scientific reason behind it. Yeah, It's a really hard subject to test because, like you said, I mean, uh, there are plenty of ways in which a predator's eye could be structured. And you can't go up to a lion and ask him, you know, oh, is that zebra harder to mm-hmm. see than than uh, various species, various other grazers that are around it? Probably, um, probably be tough to get university funding for. Like, we're gonna put a lion yeah. in a stadium, <laughs> and we're gonna have a zebra and a horse, yeah. <laughs> and we're gonna see which one the lion devours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the other problem is too that you know camouflage is not a simple. Um, strategy either like it could not only be that it's blending into the grass like with the navy seals but also just the fact that you could have you know 20 zebras and a harem clustered together and all of those stripes could look like a single mass moving along so when the lion charges it and they all scatter in different ways that's another part of this camouflage hypothesis is that maybe all the stripes moving in different directions would disorient the predator sure so but in in either event both of those, um, both of those explanations are they make logical sense. But again, um, like Kaya said, there's it's hard to collect that evidence because it's just inherently hard to test. Sure. It's like uh, like how schools of minnows will form into large fleets that uh, take on the appearance of a much larger animal in order to kind of deter predators. Yeah. Let's be honest. We've all seen Finding Nemo. We all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so uh, uh, it does make sense that um, a large, just a wall of stripes would be more intimidating to a lion or to a pack of hyenas or something than just a series of individual animals. Uh, it, it's kind of like seeing the forest for the trees, but in living action. Yeah. So that makes sense. And then the the third one that they the or I guess the second one the third one that we're talking about the ID system that is that seems extreme yeah. if I'm being honest because that that would be the equivalent of human beings all getting our names tattooed onto our foreheads yeah. like there has to be a more subtle way to go about that than and full just, body stripes not just that because you know for a tattoo on our face like that wouldn't I mean it might affect our ability to have have offspring I guess but you know like the the stripes do make them stand out in the savanna so it is a you would you could see how it might be some cost to their fitness it would be more like if we had uh, if we had to wear fluorescent body paint yeah. 24/7 and yeah. we all just had different colors and combinations exactly. to identify ourselves yeah <laughs> so like um, I think that going forward with the rest of these hypotheses you know you just have to keep in mind that um, the way that evolution works is that um, these traits develop through mutations and there are going to be both benefits and drawbacks and so that's why there is kind of a suite of explanations for why zebras have stripes and they probably all contribute to the story a little bit you know like it would be helpful for them to identify their mate more quickly and it would be helpful if you know the, they have this kind of social camouflage, and but there are also many other factors to it that we'll learn more about. And just based off of their tone, you can tell that um, these these first three theories are kind of the the fallback ones, yeah. uh, the ones that make the most immediate logical sense. Uh, but I think with the next two, she really puts forward the ones that seem to have the most current evidence behind them. Uh, and then these are the two sort of like really uh, competing hypotheses at the moment. Um, Tim Carrow from UC Davis just recently published this big study on how it um, is likely to be biting flies that are actually driving the stripes. So. Um, flies, this has been shown experimentally, for some reason do not like landing on black and white striped surfaces. Something to do with the polarized light, maybe their compound eyes. So um, they really like black, uh, they prefer white less, and then black and white stripes they prefer even less. Um, 
And this study showed that you know the ge geographic variation of the stripes correlates with the range, and this is where it gets a little bit muddy, the supposed range of the, the biting flies that carry African sleeping sickness, the tsetse flies. Um, but the thing is they use temperature ranges that are optimal for these flies instead of like raw data on their mm. distribution mm. because it, uh, supposedly because that raw data isn't widely available for the African continent. So really that study kind of showed a correlation between temperature and striping patterns and that's the fifth hypothesis is that they're actually for thermoregulation. So black absorbs heat, white reflects heat, which actually means that the air right above the black stripes rises because it's hot. And then that should create a vacuum for the air on above the white stripes next to the black mm -hmm. to rush in. And then that it's should like hypothetically cell or something. Yes, it should hypothetically create convection cells that might act as mini fans at the surface of the zebra skin to cool mm -hmm. them off. There's a lot of background on why zebras should have stripes and not other herbivores. They, their hair is shorter than the other herbivores. Their hair is actually uh, shorter than the proboscis of the tsetse fly, but not the other herbivores. Okay. But the hair also has to be shorter, or might have to be shorter because of thermoregulation, and they would have to deal with more heat than the other herbivores because they have a digestive system that requires a high throughput process where they just have to keep eating, whereas other herbivores process their food differently mm -hmm. than equids, and they can keep they can basically stay in the shade for longer rather than grazing on the sun. Mm -hmm. That's a very long-winded explanation, but yeah, there's no, a lot yeah, of different hypotheses. Kind of interesting. That is one thing about zebras that I didn't understand until I came out here. They're like, basically like walking oil drums. Like their gut is just enormous. Yeah. Okay. So those two theories seem like science fiction, almost. The idea that uh, Tim Carrow, uh, that was the guy, Tim Carrow from UC, UC Davis. Davis, yeah, um, the Titi flies don't like stripes, which on the surface seems almost childish in its presentation, but weirdly, it's the, the one of the two theories that I actually, it makes the most sense to me, yeah. because I only have to accept one thing is true. All you have to accept is that for whatever reason, biting flies, tsetse flies, don't like black and white stripes. Yeah. If, you, if that is true, which, hey, sure, why not? I, I've seen weirder things. Ducks have corkscrew penises. Why can't tsetse flies not like stripes? Yeah. So, uh, if, if that is true, then it makes complete sense. And then the only question would be, why don't more animals have stripes? Because if that's the hack to not getting bitten, that seems like that, that's a good yeah. sacrifice to make. Yeah, you lose your sense of style, but you're also not constantly bleeding from hundreds of bites. I think that, um, that explanation was like, Kind of serendipitous in how they figured it out like there were literally oil drums that had different you know colors on them and i i guess maybe don't quote me on this but I, i've heard this from uh various researchers at impala that you know they just noticed that you know flies were landing on certain parts of the of those drums, of those drums yeah. and then they <laughs> and then sure enough they painted some with black paint some with mm. white paint some with stripes and they were able to show really clearly that um you know, again, this might not be, like, the singular driving True. force behind why zebras developed this really distinctive mutation, but it's a it's certainly a, a benefit to it. And I mean, hey, some animals just luck out. Like, the sailfish just is the fastest fish. It's mm. the fastest thing on this planet. Um, and uh, so it, I guess... From that perspective, that makes sense. But zebras just got lucky with the draw of evolution. That hey, we evolved the one like color pattern that means we don't have to deal with tsetse flies. You guys deal with the tsetse flies. Um, yeah. So that that theory I really liked. Mm -hmm. And not to mention, I mean, you know, I think over the history of this of you know of biology, um, something like. It's only about 0.01% of species have survived. So you're bound to have some of the uh, 
some of the survivors at this point in history are going to have a pretty crazy like mm. suite of, of characteristics that they use but I mean this is how well, you become a successful species and speaking of crazy evolution that brings us to the last theory that we're, that we're talking about and this one is weird so basically correct me if I'm wrong in this uh, but the thermal regulation theory says that the the pattern of white and black serves to absorb and disperse heat um, respectively and the zebras evolved it that way to keep themselves regulated um, but it, it's a static pattern of colors so that's the part that doesn't make a ton of immediate sense to me here mm -hmm. so i think the best way i can describe it as someone who doesn't have a great background in physiology sure um so i can only sort of relay what i've learned from uh from kaya and emily and from other people at the center is that the zebras not only have um stripes next to one another which are you know black stripes would uh, yeah, sort of absorb, absorb the yeah. yeah absorb heat and then white stripes would sort of would reflect that that light energy therefore mm. they wouldn't get as hot but also the zebras have different combination or different concentrations right? Also, the zebras have different concentrations of capillaries. It's a tongue twister. Yeah. Let's be yeah. <laughs> um, under uh, under black stripes and under white stripes. So um, the theory goes that you know they could accumulate heat on the black stripes. That blood would then disperse into other areas, and yeah. then it would allow it to cool off. Um, and so I think that uh, that theory, like you said, it's the most like science fiction one that we have. Yeah. But you know the way that you address that is. Um, Luckily, it's it's easier to get at than like the lion camouflage yeah. one. So they, um, the way that they're it's definitely easier to test. Exactly. So they're testing it right now with simple tools like laser thermometers. Yeah. They'll like paint a board with black and white stripes, put it out at different angles under the Kenyan sun, and well, see how it, or if convection cells actually. And then occur. the the part that's really important um, to this theory, and that you had to explain to me, was just how uh, unchanging the weather conditions are in this part of Africa. Like, it, there's no unexpected blizzard that's going to roll through uh, and throw off the, the zebra's um, set homeostasis. Yeah. Like, it, it is very predictable, and therefore the, the unchanging stripes on the zebra make more sense in that, in, for coming from that perspective. Yeah, in, in the tropics... Um, which is where Kenya is mm -hmm. located, you know, right on the equator. So, in the tropics, you have this pattern of uh, of weather where um, you basically have a wet season, then a dry season, then a wet season, then a dry season over the course of a year. And um, but um, disregarding, let me, I'm gonna no, cut yeah, it a little yeah. bit. But um, but really, the um, the environment they live in is pretty predictably it's going to be kind of hot and arid and so um mitigating the effects of a, a pretty blistering sun is uh definitely an important factor in their evolution yeah and uh, obviously the zebras would have uh evolved instincts to go along with the color patterns that tell them when it would be most advantageous to get into shade when to get into sun and so on mm -hmm. and so forth yeah uh, so it's it's an interesting thing that even though zebras are that is their thing they have stripes uh, we still haven't been able to reach a conclusive answer on why it is it's mostly just a matter of which one is gaining the most evidence currently mm -hmm. but the nature of having so many intelligent people attacking the problem from different angles is that each one is going to be able to find evidence to support their conclusion uh, so it really is a question that we might never get the answer to which is not what I was expecting when I agreed to do this you yeah. son of a bitch <laughs> I come to this for answers, not <laughs> questions. <laughs> yep. But uh, that's the that's the nature of the work that we do. And I said, way to go, man. Cause whatever you may roll, there's a station playing rock and roll. So stay tuned in, stay tuned in. I will turn around. I do think it's interesting that 
to in order to answer questions that are relevant to conservation or to like you know minimizing whatever invasive species impacts or like anthropogenic pressures or stuff, you do have to understand the system to start with. Yeah. So it's not like questions for the sake of questions are actually worthless. It's just that mm -hmm. sometimes it's harder to sell or to make your grandmother explain why yeah. you come out here and study like you know yeah. why do zebras have stripes or something. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think. Um, this is something that we all kind of have a duty to think about. I think it's a great thing that we have to sell it. I think, you know, having to write grants and convince people that it's important to do what we're doing is 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 really good. Uh, otherwise, we would just go off on our own and like, I don't know, we, we, would, we would lose touch with why we're doing what we're doing. So I think it's great to, as a constant reminder to have to do that. Um, but I also think that like being, being out here in one of the last remaining ecosystems where they have, you know, the near complete suite of mega herbivores and megafauna out um, in existence still, uh, we need to really think about how we can help keep it there. Even if we study, um, I, I can't really think of something that someone studies here that's not relevant to conserving mm -hmm. the ecosystem. It all is different pieces of the puzzle that make it what it is. And it's hard for you to think of that because at the dinner table here at our little insular research center, it's easy for all of us to like conceptualize why the other person's research is important, mm -hmm. but it's still, when we go back home, mm -hmm. um, How do I'm you sure explain that, the importance of your little piece? Yeah, and mm -hmm. I'm sure that not everyone has, like, I don't, I'm not a like, great science communicator. I'm still like trying to figure that out, mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm sure plenty of us go home and we spend like three months out here doing this project. We're like, it was great. Like, yeah. <laughs> I went out to Africa. And, and, but like, it is a kind of elusive skill to, it is. to know how to make that relevant mm -hmm. to, yeah, everyone, including like the American taxpayer who is yes. basically paying for, for me to be out here um, yeah. and for people. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's just, I think that's just one of those lifelong struggles. Mm hmm that we all have to, I, I mean, we all should be working towards. Yeah. Um, so yeah. important. I think I knew like in high school that I wanted to do oh, yeah. this kind of work, but I, I like didn't think that it was a viable career path at all. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's not a job anymore. Mm -hmm. um, because I didn't have any idea how I would communicate those like results to people in any meaningful way. I was aware that you know you like publishing journals and stuff, but that's they're all behind paywalls. It's, yeah. So um, I know it's so useless. People yeah. need to figure that shit out. <laughs> yeah. It's so, it, yeah. It's basically just hidden in a vault. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. But people are getting really creative with science communication. It's really fun. Um, I think just keeping an eye out, being connected to social media, mm -hmm. you get really good ideas of how to get your things out there. And yeah. you know, there are some amazing artists that work with scientists um, mm -hmm. that do some you know really cool stuff just to like visualize mm -hmm. or yeah, I guess mostly what I'm thinking of is visualizing. Uh, really complex ideas and just putting it in a beautiful picture that people can look at and understand without reading one word. You know, that's cool. That's mm -hmm. really skillful. And um, we need to be more sort of cognizant of, of that um, yeah. gap the, in, in, yeah. in academia and to fill it yeah. in. The STEAM like movement of adding art into mm -hmm. science and engineering is really mm -hmm. cool because it just, everyone can appreciate art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everyone can just look at something and be like, oh, that's neat. Yeah. Yeah. There's this really cool class at UF that was offered the, uh, this last spring, University of Florida. So it was a collaborative class between um, Jamie Galuli, who's a professor, assistant professor at, in the bio department. And then um, I really should know who his collaborator was, but she was in the um, College of uh, Fine Arts at UF. And like they had this course where they took half biology and half finance students and they um they'll it was this really freeform course where they just like met at an art studio all semester and then the only project that they had was like putting together this art show at the end of the semester and it was 
incredible. Like they had cool. pieces about um, about like uh, what comes to mind is like saltwater intrusion and people blasting the tops off of mountains for mining. And they had like all these pieces that were really like I looked at them and immediately knew what they were mm-hmm. like communicating mm-hmm. in in ways that I hadn't really thought of before. And um, yeah, and I mean that that show is actually kind of the what got me thinking about doing a podcast and trying to do more just like accessible ways of talking about science and getting students interested in science because um, it's weird like when I went to this art show all around me are all these undergrads who are like I don't know a bunch of guys in like frat jerseys and stuff that I knew probably weren't there for anything other than like extra credit in like their bio 2 course or something but it was good to see that they were like at least taking five minutes to, like, look at a display, whereas they certainly weren't going to take five minutes to read a paper about mm-hmm. the same subject. So, And even if, if they was, did, they wouldn't be as affected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I could tell that, like... So, actually, I kind of listened to the conversation before the show started, and a bunch of people said that, that they were, like, just there for extra credit. But I could tell that by the end, people were, like, taking their time walking through this exhibit. And it was, like... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seemed like this really successful attempt at getting people just more interested in ideas that I'm sure they wouldn't care about otherwise. Yeah. So, yeah. Socks on concrete, jolly rancher kids. I was talking back and now I gotta stay at grandma care. Bunch of tank top, nappy-headed bikes, still in chatter, boys. None of my niggas ain't had no debt. None of my niggas ain't had no choice. JJ, Mikey, Lil Derek, and them. 79th Street was America then. Ice cream truck and the beauty supply. Blockbuster movies and hoes again. We were still catching lightning bugs when the plague hit the backyard. Had to come in that dark. Cause the big shorties act hard. Okay. That is a weird... Uh, the idea that a species could be overstudied is one that doesn't... It's it's a weird thought. Explain this to me. How can something possibly be studied to the point where we don't understand it? Well, I think that that's a problem that a lot of biologists run into when they try to explain their work to the public is like at what point does it become frivolous to you know know um not just why do zebras have stripes because you know a, an american taxpayer might not understand like why their money that goes to the nsf that's then dispersed to scientists why it's useful to learn these things mm-hmm. but um but the better that we understand some of these key species, especially ones that are really important, like zebras. Um, so I think uh, Emily and Kaya have both told me that there's kind of a, they 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 have a mutualistic relationship with yeah. with cattle in these areas. So they're actually good for the pasture if they're allowed to mingle with cattle, and it, it's better for humans in that area. So in general, um, we wouldn't be able to it. Reminds me somewhat, not at all trying to make this political, but it reminds me of how uh, bringing in uh, immigrant populations uh, to increase the diversity uh, has beneficial uh, repercussions on society as a whole. Like bringing in a species like a zebra has the weird side effect of they eat a type of grass that the cattle can't eat. Um, so that that probably would make it easier to justify your research to the locals uh, that have business interests in the area. Yeah, and in general, um, you know, when you are able to um, understand a species well enough that you can have um, not only better conservation efforts, but um, but sort of interdigitate the benefits of the species with the benefits of the people in an area. Um, that's the point where science actually has real concrete economic value um but in terms of that's that's still a degree separated from american society well i mean this hits on uh this hits on a a point that the that emily and kaya brought up which was that a large part of the problem and let's be honest the reason that i am here doing this podcast with you is that making science engaging to the general population is really difficult. The phrase that jumped out to me was science communicator. Well, that's not true. To be honest, the phrase that jumped out to me was mega herbivores and megafauna, which I have I have told Patrick needs to be 
front and center in any research paper that it can be put into. Like, even if it's just kind of really, you're studying water? No, you're studying the water source of herba, of mega herbivores yeah. and mega fauna. <laughs> so, uh, but, but also the science communicator bit really stuck out to me. Because it, it um, reminded me of, of why a documentary like Planet Earth can be so successful. Because science naturally is an interesting thing. Science, learning how the world works is interesting. It's the reason we've been doing it for so long. But making the interesting subject interesting to present is a whole nother set of issues that the academic community seems to constantly have trouble with. I like reading research papers, and even I think they're silly kind of dry. Yeah. <laughs> There's, you have to be able to make it more accessible than yeah. that. Now, what, what kind of things have you encountered uh, in your academic career in terms of, I mean, you've, you've got the podcast, but when, when it comes time to do your academic um, presentations to scholarly peers. Is there any way to try to jazz it up a little bit? So the approach that I take and that my advisor has kind of like beaten to me has been to take more of an approach of like a businessman selling mm -hmm. an idea and identifying the the values and the, the outcomes that are that are valuable to your audience. So if you are talking to, yeah. if you're giving a seminar to a bunch of, you know, PhDs and, at a university, that's fine. You can talk about how much a diversity index changes or something. Mm -hmm. But if you are talking to a museum audience, yeah. um, if I'm trying to explain to, uh, for instance... A welder and yeah. an electrician and a yeah. nurse and a plumber. Yeah, like, so I have this idea that we're going to set up eventually at the Florida Museum of Natural History where I'd like to do a pop-up exhibit about my system which is ants that live on trees that then fight off elephants and it's like a system that we actually understand pretty well um, but elephants are another one of those species that falls into the overstudied mm -hmm. uh, category where you know the average taxpayer might say like why do we need to know more about elephants well it actually does come back around because if you understand elephants really well and you know a better way to not only protect them from poachers but also to create good habitat for them um that comes all the way around to like national security even well and it kind of uh it raises the question of is it ethically sound i would argue that it is uh but is it ethically sound to lie a little bit in order to make the larger point uh, mm -hmm. that needs to be made. The, the example that jumps out to me is NASA, when it presents images from the Hubble telescope, color corrects the hell out of those images. Nice bright greens and reds and oranges and none of that exists out in space. Mm -hmm. It's just a representation of the uh, reactions that are going on and the different elements that are present in the nebulas and such. Mm -hmm. But uh, they, NASA knows that if they were to just put those images out there, people would take one look at it and say, that's a, bust, a bunch of dust floating out in space. Why are you making me look at this? Why am I paying you? Mm -hmm. So um, it, what, what do you think? Do you think it's okay to stretch the uh, truth, exaggerate, shall we, shall we say, a little bit. So I bit. think that it's it's um, actually not a matter of exaggerating, but um, Emily brought up the term of STEAM. So STEM is the acronym yeah. for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. And there's this... And of course, we all know what STEAM is, but for the slower listeners, yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. you could explain yeah. the concept. So STEAM, I'm not talking about vapor. I'm talking about those four characteristics, um, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, integrated into art, which okay. is what the A is in of course, that acronym, of STEAM. And, um, and I think that that is actually the, the technique that we need to use to not stretch the truth, but to present scientific findings in a way that is more accessible to people that are not only just outside of our field, because, I mean, that's obvious, we need to communicate these to everybody, to hunters, to policymakers, to regular business people, but also communicate them in ways that um, are understandable to people that think in a different way. So, you know, we have this idea of right brain versus left brain, whether you want to like buy into that um, whole that's a, that's a whole, that, well, yeah. that's a separate podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, 
but you know, communicating ideas in in a visual medium, in an audio medium, in uh, not only in like a podcast, but also in like an art exhibit or something. I think okay. that's the way of really. So maybe there should be some kind of uh, some kind of deal where for every ten million dollars a Hollywood director makes, they have to make a. a nature documentary and just get the different perspectives that way because it does planet earth really is uh an example of how to present science in a way that the public can't get enough of Mm -hmm. like the the second uh season of planet earth coming out was an event (laughs) and i was looking forward to it just as much as everybody else i cannot get enough of that i will sit there and watch an alligator swim through a river for five minutes yeah. just unblinking just is it gonna eat that crane i think it's gonna it's gonna try to eat that does the crane see it run away crane yeah. run away oh oh it didn't run yeah. it nope <laughs> so uh that that's definitely something that the the academic community as a whole could look towards for inspiration mm-hmm. well thanks for co-hosting this it was an absolute me, pleasure i'd love to come back anytime yeah it'll be fun man um yeah we'll be back um with the next episode about uh sort of social networks in both primates and also other grazer species so hey can't get enough of that yeah. facebook for monkeys bring it on <laughs> exactly all right man thanks absolutely pat anytime and thank you for listening for more podcasts check out the ecotones podcast on itunes and soundcloud and check out more about what our lab does at savannahecology.com we're going to end 2016 listening to in my opinion the best song from the year chance the rapper's summer friends i'd go on and on about it but i don't really think it needs any commentary so here's to a better year this has been Ecotones. You treat the girl like it's a time share. I would mow some lawns for my ones like a launcher. Huh, huh. Now I'm the same way. Overtime, all the time, every night. Eh. Ready my blessing, I'm ready, I wait. Never let a friendship get in my way. Never let a block get in my way. Make the whole song do whatever I say. 79, 79, 79, babe. 79, 79, 79, babe. Some of my homegirls got lost in the paperwork. They was good friends, but I fake the flirt. Cause if it ain't work, can't make it work. Been a minute since I called on a friend Fucked up and fucked all my friends